Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Well, let's look tonight in uh, the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 7 will be uh, there this evening. So go ahead and open your Bibles up to that particular passage of Scripture tonight. 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, we'll be looking at the everlasting, an everlasting throne this evening. In the Old Testament, God made uh, promises to different people, uh, covenants uh, to different individuals. He made one to Noah, Abraham, Moses, David. Uh, and these covenants sort of outlined uh, what God would do um, and also expectation of what the individuals that the covenant was made with, what they would do, with the exception of the Noahic covenant or the one he made with Noah, because the covenant God made with Noah was made with all living creatures. And so, uh, as John Piper puts it, it's kind of hard to expect uh, faith out of a frog. It's the way that he said it. But all the other covenants, there was a, a condition of obedience that was needed. Or there was a promise of what God would do. Um, and John Piper kind of calls them uh, God's job descriptions. And we're kind of familiar with that idea, that terminology, because all of us at one point in time in our life have had to look at or create a job description, you know? What, are, what, are my, what am I expected to do? What does the employer expect from me as I enter into this uh, 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 business or whatever, this uh, particular job I'm going to do? But that was the way that God worked in the Old Testament. That's the way that things would he revealed himself uh, progressively through the Old Testament in various ways in these covenants. Uh, God told the person that if they would, they would do the things and would follow him, uh, he would complete as well in his end. The only exception there, I said, was Noah. Uh, but today, today he's working. He calls people through his son, Jesus Christ. Okay, and as these covenants, we discover that really only God can fulfill the ultimate end of each one. There's a kind of an immediate fulfillment of things, but the ultimate fulfillment is only uh, can be done by God. And that's why Jesus came. He fulfills the Old Testament uh, prophecies in himself, his obedience uh, to the will of God and all that he did. Uh, fulfills those things. And so tonight we're going to take a look at a covenant that was made with David concerning his throne and his kingdom and the significance that it does have for us today uh, as the church as well. Let's look here together and we're in 2 Samuel 7 verse number 1. It says, And it came to pass when the king sat in his house, the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies, that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. It came to pass that night, the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus saith the Lord, Shalt thou build me a house for me to dwell in? Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. In all the places wherein I've walked with all the children of Israel, spake I a word with any of the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, Why build ye not me a house of cedar? Now therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheep coat, from following the sheep, 
to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name, like unto the name of that great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee an house. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house for thy name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, he shall be my son." If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. Let's pray together. God, we are thankful for this day. We thank you, God, for an opportunity again. We're here. And I pray, God, as we look into your word, that we would focus our hearts and minds and spirit and on you, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would be free to work in us, God, that the words would be said would be your words, Lord, and not my own, and that, God, tonight we would uh, leave here uh, changed because of what we've heard, Lord, through your spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. So we see here, first of all, David has a desire for a house for the Lord, a house for the Lord. That's the first thing we see uh, here. And so we have David's proposal as the very first thing that we look at. These first three verses give us an indication here, okay? David, sitting there in his palace, okay? It was a gift to him from a, from a king in the area. He has peace. His enemies are defeated. And he sort of recognizes, at least in his estimation, that his living condition is better and more magnificent than the place of the ark, which he says in the King James, it's here, is dwelling within curtains. That means it's in the tabernacle still. The tabernacle was the place that God told Moses that the ark would rest, that God's presence would be with his people. Uh, and so the tabernacle is still there. There has not been a temple built to David's day. Now, this is a pretty big deal for them because that is where the presence of the Lord is. You see, today for us, when we are saved, the Holy Spirit resides in us. The presence of the Lord is in us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But for them in those days before Christ came, God dwelling with his people was a very important thing, and the place that he chose to dwell was there in the tabernacle. And so David has a very good heart going on here. He's got a good thought, and he wants to have this place here for God to be in. May have been very well in the very right place. Think about where David's at now, okay? He's the king now. As we've read, his enemies have been defeated. He's got this nice palace that he's living in. He had captured Jerusalem, and that's kind of significant because at the time, it wasn't really that much of a city. Not only that at the time of David, it really wasn't connected with any specific tribe, which is very good because making that the capital meant that it wasn't connected to any specific tribe. Sort of like when our founding fathers created the Washington, D.C. They took area from all of these different states and made it separate so that it wouldn't be attached to any one particular state. Okay. So David has Jerusalem because it's not got a specific attachment so that he can make a centralized kingdom. Well, then he, in chapter 6, if we would have read through that, he, he had moved the ark, finally, the right way, uh, into Jerusalem as well. So he's got the seat of government, he's got the seat of religion all there in one place, and now he begins looking. He's trying to establish a nation, perhaps, 
and unifying things. And so David's there and he says, look at this, I'm dwelling in this wonderful place and God is still dwelling in a tent. That must have been quite a thing for him to imagine. And so Nathan the prophet, we see there, there, this is the same Nathan who later will confront David about his sin with Bathsheba. Nathan the prophet is there with him and they're talking together. And Nathan's first response is, go ahead and do it. Do all that's in your heart. And Nathan's not being facetious or anything like that. He's being serious. And he's, but the problem is, is that he is speaking a little out of turn because he has not sought the Lord for it. Probably thought it was a good idea. And I want to be too harsh on Nathan, though, because honestly, any of us would have probably said the same thing if we thought about it. We may have been in the very same position. And, and David says, hey, we need to build a temple. And we say, yeah, that's a good idea, David. Let's do it without really thinking. We're, we're all prone to that. So I'm not, my interest is here not to cause blame or throw anything there. I'm just trying to point out that Nathan did not first speak with God about it, didn't wait. Up to this point here, we've got a couple of things we should consider. First of all, we see David wanting to give his best to the Lord. There was, there was not a time that, that God had asked for this, and, and so David is sitting there thinking he wants to give his best to the Lord. He wasn't content that in his estimation, his house was greater than God's. One thing for us to think about tonight is, do we want to give God our best? Is that a desire that we have in our hearts? I think a lot of times today, we're very tempted to kind of keep some of the best for ourselves and just give God what's left over after that. Instead, we should be as David and having the best for God and giving him that. The other thing is here in regards to Nathan, again, he didn't consult the Lord. He just went ahead, said ahead, went ahead and said, go and do it. Oftentimes, I think we also uh, don't always pray about the little things, right? Sometimes we feel like there's things in our lives that are just little things, and we're just trying to handle them on our own, or we make a decision about it on our own. We leave all the big stuff up to God. But the reality of the situation is that God wants us to pray about everything. And we have the opportunity to bring everything before the Lord. Even if we feel like it's a very small matter, we always bring the big things to God because we don't always know how to handle them. But even the small thing, God wants us to pray about and he cares for those things. And so are we giving our best to the Lord? Or are we praying about all the things that come into our lives? But going on from there, God does come to Nathan, and God does speak to Nathan. Verse 4, it came to pass that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. So here's what should have happened first, but now God comes and speaks to him. He, he does it that very night. That way David hasn't gone ahead and made some kind of preparation or building plan. And God's response to Nathan is very interesting. Because he doesn't just come out and say no immediately, although he does say no. His response is a question, shall thou build, in verse 5, shall thou build me a house for me to dwell in? So I got to wondering about that. Is, does David maybe have a little bit of pride in his heart? Or maybe it's more like God needs a reminder, or excuse me, David needs a reminder that God doesn't really need us or our things. God's not worshipped in temples that we make. He's the self-sufficient one. He revealed himself to Moses in that way. He says, I am that I am. David may have just needed a little bit of a reminder here that it's God who establishes things. It's God who sets up things. That may be why the emphasis on thou or on you. Shall you? Are you the one to do it for me, David? Are you the one to build a house for me? And God reminds him in verses 6 and 7 that he has never asked for that once in all the wanderings and all the places that they've gone since the children of Israel left Egypt. He's never once asked for a house to be there. 
God reminds David that it's he who establishes things. Let's look now at God's disposal and God's disposal here. Beginning in verse number 8, the Lord is still speaking. And this is important because now, not only there in verse number 5, but now again in verse number 8, we get, thus saith the Lord. That's what the prophet's job was, was to speak the message of God to the people of God. Thus saith the Lord. And he says this to David, I took thee from the sheep coat, from following sheep, to be ruler over all people, over Israel. And I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest, and cut off all thy enemies out of thy sight, and made thee a great name. So we have all these things. God is the one who's established David as king. It's not David who has done it in his own strength or his own might. And God's message to David is, no, no, you won't be able to build the temple for me. God had other plans. We look through uh, the Bible later on in 1 Chronicles 22, 8 through 10. You could write that down. That's the reference there. 1 Chronicles 22, 8 through 10. We can go over there for a minute and turn there. 1 Chronicles 22, 8 through 10. This is where we find out the answer, a little bit more detail anyway, as to why David cannot be the one uh, to build the um, temple for God. 1 Chronicles 22, verse number 8 says, But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, this is David talking, Thou hast shed blood abundantly and hast made great wars. Thou shalt not build a house unto my name, because thou hast shed much blood upon the earth in my sight. Behold, a son shall be born to thee, who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his enemies round about. For his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quietness unto Israel. In his days he shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father. I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. So we get the answer there. David has fought the wars and has slain many people. Now, it's very possible that he did not know that full answer until much later on. But God reminds David again of this. I'm the one that established you as king. I brought you up out from tending sheep. You were chosen by me for this task. And Saul was still the king. We look all the way back to 1 Samuel 13. That's the first time we see a phrase that God sought a man after his own heart. And then we find out in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel that that's David. And it was David, it was God who destroyed David's enemies. It was God who was going to make David's name great. And even in that statement there, God is reminding David of a covenant, the Abrahamic covenant that he made many years ago with Abraham, that kings would come out of him, that his name would be great also, that Abraham's name would be great. Genesis 12 and Genesis 17 and then later in Genesis, we get a prophecy from Jacob to Judah that specifically from his tribe and from his children is where we're going to get the kings. Genesis 49.10. And he's reminding of all these things that are going on in verses 8 and 9. And then God goes another step. In verse number 10, he says this, Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. It's God who will establish the nation of Israel, who will build it up, who will make it last and he will give them the land they're living on as a promise to Abraham. And from the day of the judges until the day that David was here, it would continue on and continue after that as well. And so if what we see here from this is that God is the one who establishes. God sets up rulers. God sets up nations. His sovereignty is over all. David had a desire to establish a home for God. I think it was a sincere desire from a sincere heart. But it is God is the one who establishes all these things. David had rest from his enemies. David had peace because God had given it to him. But then if that wasn't enough, the very, very last sentence of verse number 11, what a powerful sentence that is. And that brings us to the next point, a house for David, a house for David. Look at the very last verse or very last sentence in verse 11. It says, also, 
as if all these things weren't enough. Also, the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee a house. So now we see God's proposal. Now God tells David that he will build David a house instead. And of course, he's not meaning a literal house. He's meaning that David's children will be the ones to reign in his place after he dies. That all of his children will be, that, that his children will be in a succession, in a line. That there will be an heir that will be his son to the, to the throne forever. And this is a very important thing, not only for Solomon right there in that moment, for David right in that moment concerning Solomon, but also for us today that the future heir would be from the house of David. And this is a big announcement in itself because this hasn't even happened yet in the history of Israel. Because Saul was the first king, and Saul died in battle, and Jonathan died in battle, and there wasn't anybody to take up that, that house. There wasn't any uh, heir left who could be the king after David became the king. And so for anybody to say that your son is going to take over, that would be a very big announcement just in itself. God would establish the kingdom of Solomon. Let's look at verse 12 and 13. It says, And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God was going to establish that the throne, the right to rule, would remain in David's line forever. They would never depart from his house. And that's important because Sometimes the kingdom wasn't there. The, the physical kingdom wasn't there. Sometimes the kings didn't do what was right. And the following verses below that give us the conditions of the covenant. That David's heirs would have the throne as long as they obeyed the Lord. That the throne being established would be the important part because the right to rule would never depart from David. Let's look at God's disposal. Verse 14. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, with the stripes of children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. Thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. There's a special relationship here in God's disposal of this promise. The condition was that the children of Solomon, the children of David, they must remain obedient. They must follow the commands and statutes. That's repeated many times throughout by the prophets later on in later generations of David's children, that they must continue to do that. But there's a special relationship set up there. God says, I will be to him a father. He will be to me a son. And that's a unique relationship because what that means is though times would come where the rod of men the chastening of the stripes of the children of men may come for these kings that do wickedly. God is disciplining them as a father disciplines. And that's a very different type of discipline than a punitive type of discipline or a chastening. You see, with a disciplinary type of chastening, there's a purpose. There's an end. There's a reason for it. At the end of raising children, you want them to be good citizens. You want them to be saved. You want them to grow in the admonition of the Lord. You want them to uh, do well once they leave the nest, so to speak. There's an end of the discipline. There's a goal. There's a purpose. And you do it all in love. Love is the motivation for it. Love is the end result. Love is what is guiding that. It's a disciplinary. A punitive has a lot more to do with those that have rebelled against God, that have rejected God. They receive the reward of their sin. There's a difference there. 
Disciplinary is for correcting, it's motivated by love. Punitive is for those who rebel and reject God. And it's all motivated, look back at the Bible, look at it. It's all motivated in verse 15 by his mercy. In the Old Testament, whenever we see mercy, we see loving kindness, those type of words in connection with God's covenants, it means his everlasting love. It's hesed in Hebrew. His everlasting love that never changes, no matter what is going on, no matter the sin, no matter what's going on, his everlasting love does not change, does not ever leave that person. God had that kind of love for Israel as a nation. God is going to have that kind of love for David's heirs. And so it's fulfilled in Solomon. It's fulfilled in all of his successors in the sense that the throne continues and remains. As long as the one on the throne obeyed the Lord, the kingdom was secure. Now the kingdom got divided. There was a northern kingdom. There was a southern kingdom. All of the northern kingdom rulers, all the kings of the northern kingdom, none of them were David's children, and they were all wicked, every single one of them. In the southern kingdom, the rule remained with David. The promise was fulfilled. And some of them were good and some of them were bad. But the rule never left, the throne never left David until the Babylonians came. And even then, as Ezekiel and others prophesy, it would come again. God kept the promise. But this passage here, these last few verses here that we're going to look at before we look at the last point this evening, point us to something greater. Points us to the one who can actually uh, uh, claim an everlasting throne and an everlasting kingdom, and that is God's Son. He is the one who would inherit the throne one day, the Messiah. He's the only one that could fulfill the everlasting throne. He's the one who overcomes all. This is Jesus. Right here we have a very good example of an Old Testament type of prophecy where it gathers things that are going to happen soon, like a near fulfillment of the prophecy and a future fulfillment of the prophecy that's way out in front that you don't know how far away it is, how long it's going to be, but it's out here at some point, brings them all together and shows it to you all at one time. And that's what's going on here. Not only is there a prophecy here that Solomon and all of them would continue to inherit, but that one day a greater son, the Messiah, would come and Christ will be the one to do it. When he returns, he will reign from Jerusalem. He will reign on the throne of his father, David, and he sets up his millennial reign. He's ruling and reigning now. But Christ is the one who brings the ultimate fulfillment of this. Finally, this evening, we see a house forever. A house forever. We begin with the promise consummated. Go with me to Luke chapter 1. This is a very familiar portion of Scripture, of course. We read it most of the time in... Christmas, at Christmas time. But it's a very important scripture for what we're talking about tonight. The angel Gabriel comes to Mary and announces that she will be the one who will carry Messiah. And we have to understand that this is after the end of the Old Testament, so to speak. Prophecy hasn't been around for 400 years. The people have been reading all they had, the Old Testament, learning from the rabbis and different things, but they have not had a word of prophecy 400 years. And here comes the angel Gabriel, Luke 1, 31 to 33. says this, And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne, here it is, of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob. How long? Forever. Forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. The start of this ultimate promise is found there as Jesus 
the announcement that Jesus would, would come was made to Mary. He is the one who is from David. We go to Matthew chapter 1. The reason why Matthew chapter 1 has all the names of the people from Abraham down through Jesus is to show the legal rule and reign that Jesus has. He is the heir. He has the right and the legal right to claim the throne of David. And Paul, summing up all of those things in, verses, in verse 3 of Romans chapter 1, says this, Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. That's why we read in Matthew chapter 1 all those names. He was made, according, he was made, a, made of the seed of David according to the flesh. But he's also the Lord of David. Matthew 22, Jesus proposes this question to the scribes and Pharisees. Go to there, Psalm 110. I won't go through Psalm 110. I'll leave that for Pastor Jason when he, as the Lord leads to get there. But Psalm 110 is what Jesus asked the Pharisees there. It's a Psalm of David. It's a Messianic Psalm. The very beginning says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. How could David write that? Because David was writing that about one that was greater than him, about the one who would come and rule and reign forever, about Jesus, about the Messiah. He's from David. He's the Lord of David. He's the one who will reign forever. 1 Corinthians 15.25 says this, For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. So we see in many Bible prophecies, in many areas, that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of these prophecies concerning the Messiah. Other verses that we hear at Christmas time. He's the wonderful counselor, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. He's the root of Jesse, Isaiah 11, 1. Let's go to Jeremiah 23 because I want to read this one. Jeremiah 23, because he is the one who will bring righteousness to all the earth. Beginning in verse number, excuse me, excuse me, verse number 5, Jeremiah 23, verse 5. It says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch. And if you have a Bible like mine, it's capitalized right there. Branch. A king shall reign and prosper, and he shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is the name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. He is the one who brings righteousness to all the earth. Go to this one too, Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37. The second half of verse 23 through verse 24, Ezekiel 37, 23b through 24. He's the one who brings salvation. It says this, But I will save them, God speaking, I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned, and I will cleanse them. So, so shall they be my people, and I will be their God. And David, my servant, shall be king over them. How does he say that? Because the Messiah comes from the line of David. And they all shall have one shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. The book of Ezekiel. Will bring, he, Messiah will bring salvation. He'll bring an eternal throne. He'll, bring, he'll be the shepherd to the people. And all these prophecies, the covenant made with David, is being fulfilled and will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ alone. The covenant had the conditions for the kings that obey God's commands, but the promise itself was carried out by God himself who would fulfill it by sending his son to be the one who could fulfill the conditions of the covenant. Take the throne of David. Now, very last, the promise completed. What does this have to do with us today? For us, it does have a very big impact and importance. And this 
impact and importance is most clearly demonstrated in Acts chapter 15. And Pastor Jason, of course, has been leading us through Acts and done a very good job. And Acts chapter 15 uh, was a few weeks back. But it was when the Jerusalem Council was meeting together to discuss that the Gentiles were now being saved and, and, and accepting Christ. That the message was going out. And there was testimony from Peter, and there was testimony from Paul and Barnabas, and James finally gets up and, and, and makes the decision and declares this decision based on Amos 9, 11, and 12. What is the benefit there for the Gentiles? And here it is, Amos 9, 11 through 12. And that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen, close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the heathen, the Gentiles, which are called by my name, saith the Lord, that doeth this. Because of this prophecy, the Gentiles would come and seek the Lord and find salvation. The decision that the Jerusalem Council made was a very important one that relates to us today. Ultimately, in Revelation, we see the kingdom of Jesus has its final end in this, that all the kingdoms will be a worldwide kingdom of, under, under his rule alone. Revelation eleven fifteen 15b the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And so for today, for us, we are benefiting because salvation has come through Christ. But now it's our task that we go out as kingdom ambassadors to share this message and tell others there's forgiveness in Christ, that the king is the one who's giving pardon right now to those who put their faith and trust in him. Jesus himself echoes this, Revelation twenty two sixteen, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. One of the last things that John, the human author of Revelation, quotes is Isaiah 55, 1, and I'm going to read it from Isaiah 55, 1. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money without price. See, the water of life is freely given to all those who will come to the king, and that is the benefit for us today. God gave his covenant to David, promised an eternal throne forever, and Jesus Christ is the one who is the ultimate fulfillment of his promise. So my question for that today is, if you've trusted in Christ as Savior, are you living as a child of the king? Are you following him in obedience to the commands? anyone here or anyone that may be watching the live stream, if you've not done that, I pray that you would do that tonight, that you would surrender to Christ, make him your king this evening.